Over the next few weeks, we'll push forward into the book of Nehemiah. I'll finish Ezra this morning. We'll zoom back out uh, to Zechariah and Malachi and and look at some of the minor prophets that are prophesying in this uh, end of the Old Testament story. Uh, This will be nice, nice. We're going to spill on aisle one. Uh, just, yeah, grab a towel, Chris. Don't sweat it, man. It's, it could happen to anybody. Probably wouldn't, but it could happen to anybody. Uh, it's all good. Let them grab a towel and get that. Who do you think said these words? Safe conduct on the highways should be abolished for the Jews. And that all cash and treasure of silver and gold should be taken from the Jews. Set fire to their synagogues and their schools. Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed, end quote. So what you think about that for a minute? Sounds very Hitlerish. That's a quote from Martin Luther, the father of Christian Protestantism, comma, and anti-Semite. Now, this is going to be a very interesting lesson, uh, Because you're going to have to reprogram some of your thinking. And that's always very difficult to rewire thinking. If you wanted to reform a broken church, Martin Luther's your man. You with me? If you want 95 theses nailed to the door with great theological background of what needs to be, Martin Luther's your man. If you want marriage counseling, run the other direction. If you want to know how to uh, build a cross-cultural society working together in harmony, he would not be the civic organizer you would go to for that. You're like, well, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Yeah, that is the question that keeps coming up. Have you noticed that? It's almost like looking in the mirror. Are you a good guy or a bad guy? Well, it depends on whether it's Monday or Friday sometimes. It depends is the question, you know. Uh, we are a mixed bag. This is why the Bible should ring very true to you because it's giving a real view into the lives of people without coloring the picture. It's really giving you an accurate snapshot. Listen, if you want, if you want to raise up a judge who is, I mean, gritty and tough and can go defeat you know, the, the enemy, Jephthah's your man. If you want a good father, he's not your man. It depends on what kind of role model you want. You know, very few good fathers in the Old Testament, very few happy marriages in the Old Testament, and that's not the story they're telling. They're telling a different story. So with that in mind, I want to say several things to you to get started. Leaders make mistakes. There are no such thing as a leader who always gets it right. That's a fantasy. It's not reality. Leaders, good leaders. Uh, you go back in your mind to the best political leaders you've ever known, and you'll be flashing back to people probably like Reagan or Margaret Thatcher or you know historic figures that maybe you've experienced in your lifetime. Listen, they got it wrong sometimes. That's the reality of the issue. If you're looking into the Bible... To find men and women who are role models in every aspect of life, you're going to be sorely disappointed because the Bible doesn't work this way. The Bible gives an accurate picture 
of flawed people who have great faith in Almighty God. But sometimes those good people make some very bad mistakes. I can come alongside any of them and say, I've made my share of mistakes as a leader. Some mistakes can be overcome. But moving forward will require me to acknowledge my mistake and then make a correction of the course I'm going. So let's make it a little more personal this morning. As you lead your family at home and as you lead your peers at school, And as you lead your colleagues at work, and as you lead your disciples here in the church and in the community, I pray that you're able to correct all of your leadership mistakes while you're at the very peak of your leadership influence. And if you've made leadership mistakes, do not leave those mistakes for the next generation to correct. You correct your own leadership mistakes while you still have leadership influence we would like to think that christians always do the right thing but that's a myth history has proven that to be a false assumption as a matter of historical fact many horrible injustices have been committed under the guise of christian holiness Uh, susan and i uh, outbound from europe had a layover in Amsterdam, and I said, we're going to go see the Anne Frank house. So we got tickets, went and got in line, and, and Susan and I went and toured the, the Anne Frank house in Amsterdam. And uh, if you know the story, Anne, along with her uh, uh, older sister and her mom and dad, uh, uh, hid away uh, in the uh, secret room. It was actually several secret rooms behind a trick bookcase. Uh, that hid the entrance to those rooms while the Nazis searched high and low all over the city of Amsterdam to arrest any Jews they could find and ship them off to the Auschwitz concentration camp for extermination. They successfully hid in secret rooms in that complex for uh, two years, never appearing in a window, never letting any smoke go out of the house, never people were working downstairs, never dropping anything on the floor, never flushing the toilet during the daytime when workers were below them in the other buildings. You know, two years is a pretty good run to stay secreted away in in those rooms until finally uh, they were discovered uh, by the Nazis and the whole lot of them were deported, uh, children separately from parents uh, down to Auschwitz and then the children went to uh, 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 Burke and Belson, they went to a different camp. Anyway, they shipped them all to the death camps. Ultimately, only the father survived. And when uh, Anne's father came back to Amsterdam, uh, the person who had found Anne's diary and had hidden it for all those years came to the father and said, I have your daughter's diary. We found it in the room after y'all were taken away and returned the diary to the father. And because of that teenage girl's diary, we have a very uh, realistic, accurate picture of what life was like in Europe in the late 1930s and the early 1940s. After you tour, that course, Anne and her sister died in the extermination camps. Only dad survived. And when you're left, uh, there's Anne Frank's diary right there. And uh, when, when we left... You're asking yourself after spending several hours there, how did it come to this? 
that educated, civilized, cultured people turn against other civilized, cultured people and try to exterminate an entire race of people. Let, let me back up a few years from this scene to a series of events called the pogroms. The pogroms were a series of violent attacks against Jews that happened mainly in Russia and in Poland, and the people doing the attacking were Christians. Christians attacking Jews, 1881 to 1921. The 1880s pogrom was launched uh, with propaganda saying, we got to kill these Jews because the Jews are the ones who... Uh, you know, assassinated the Tsar uh, of Russia, which was just propaganda. But the pogroms were fresh in the minds of the Nazis, late 1800s, 1910, 1920s. As the Nazis were coming to power, they were still thinking about these things that had happened in Poland and in Russia. Hitler came on the scene late 30s and began to build a pure Christian race. Uh, they use this term, I don't know if you ever heard of this term, you can look it up, positive Christianity. Positive Christianity is a term that Hitler used in the 1921 uh, Nazi Party platform when he was writing out the position of the Nazi Party. Here's what they said, quote, positive Christianity is a movement within Nazi Germany which promoted the belief that racial purity of the German people should be maintained by mixing Nazi racism with elements of Nicene Christianity. That's the Nicene Creed. Nicene Christianity. So let me say it a different way and just kind of put a bow on it. The Holocaust was actually the child of centuries of Christian anti-Semitism, Christian attacks on Jews, anti-Jewish sentiment being perpetrated by Christians towards the Jewish community for hundreds of years in Europe. You say, well, that's terrible, those nasty Europeans. Well, American history has its share of Christian-led tragedies as well. Uh, fresh in our minds is leading up to the Civil War, both pro-slavery and anti-slavery advocates hurled Bible verses back and forth at each other for years before the Civil War broke out. I would love for you to research this. This is how the Southern Baptists were born. Southern Baptists were born on a pro-slavery platform of Christianity. I think one of the biggest issues the Southern Baptists face till this day is they can't shed that baggage. They're going to have to come up with another name and relaunch themselves and say that we're going to close the chapter on that but the good old boys white club will not let them. And they're still holding on to some of that uh, race, racism within, within the Baptist movement here in America. The pro-slavery Christians felt like they had the stronger biblical argument because the pro-slavery advocates considered themselves biblical literalists. In other words, they interpret the Bible literally. They were very conservative. And they had a very strong position because they could open their Bible and say to the other side, see, in God's word, they all had slaves. And that's true. See, in God's word, it never condemns slavery. Paul's even telling the New Testament slaves, be good slaves. 
Oh, be obedient to your masters. See? And they hurled those Bible verses back and forth. Listen, slavery is abomination. It's immoral. Uh, it's not condoned by Scripture, but neither is it, you know, the soapbox that the Bible, it's not the argument the Bible's making. So you can see how people have used Christianity and used the Bible. Listen, when the westward expansion happened in America, you all know this, the Native Americans were largely exterminated by Christians. In Latin America, when the Christians landed, they largely exterminated Incans, Incas and Mayans and Aztecs and groups of people that they found. Who killed them? Christians killed them. Christians don't always do the right things. Now, you would be quick to respond and say, yes, yes, yes. But those were Catholics or those were Presbyterians or those were Lutherans or those were Anglicans. And you would say, maybe they weren't really Christians. Okay, but that's what they called themselves. And now you've made the point that I want to make this morning very strongly in the Bible stories, the Jews don't often act like God. This is the story of the Bible. Yet they call themselves God's chosen people. But they don't often in the Bible actually act like God. Now this is the tension you're held in this morning. Now at least three things ought to be evidently clear after these last sermons you've been hearing. Number one, even men and women of faith often make mistakes on how they lead. Okay? That's a given. Number two, people who call themselves Jews because of their DNA, their pure blood descendants of Abraham, people who call themselves Jews because of their DNA have misunderstood that being a Jew is not about DNA. It's a heart matter. It's about having faith in God. That's what God's idea of a Jew actually was. And number three, the Bible is not a book of hero studies. The Bible is not a book of hero studies where you're to look at a hero or a heroine in the Bible and say, I'm going to emulate every aspect of this person's lives. You can't do that because their lives were lived in another era when totally different things were acceptable or unacceptable. It doesn't line up with your culture or the time you live in and they don't always do the right thing. You can't follow them completely. Now, with that background, we open up our story in Ezra chapter number 7. Ezra 7, 8, 9, and 10 is the last half of the book of Ezra as it is in your Bible. In the original Jewish Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, not two. But uh, in modern times, they've divided it into Ezra and Nehemiah. The book of Ezra, the first half is about Zerubbabel, leaves wave number one of the immigrants out of the exile back to Israel and the last half of the book of Ezra is about a, a priest named Ezra leading the people back in the second wave of immigration back into the Holy Land. And Ezra is an expert teacher of the Mosaic Law. So let's read. Ezra 7, verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king, king of Persia, had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord 
was on him. And I would love you to read all of this in your spare time. Chapter 7 would be a great read for you. The king gives him an open checkbook and says, take any money from the treasury. And, and they're very, very, they have no conscience. The Jews have no conscience whatsoever about taking the ki- pagan king's money. This is very interesting to me. If a pagan king says, here's a billion dollars, go build the house of God, you should say, thank you, take the money, cash the check. People have often asked me, what if one of your church members won the lottery? We'd say, thank you very much, please tithe. And we would take the wealth of the world and we would use it to win people to Jesus Christ and make disciples. And we wouldn't have any conscience about that whatsoever. Uh, Money is just an object, it's a tool to use, and the ministry definitely would use it for, for the right thing. Now, Ezra is a scholar of the Mosaic Law. He's an expert. He's a descendant. He's like a grandson of the high priest. He's raised up in the high priestly family. He's an expert in the Mosaic Law. He's traveled now from Babylon, from the captivity, back to Israel. And he's going to Jerusalem. And he's going to teach the people about the law of God. They haven't heard about the law of God in a long time. They've been slaves and exiles. And he's going to teach them everything they don't know about the law of Moses. This is a good thing. And, and we're cheering for Ezra. And we're saying, yes, go teach the people the word of God. Teach them what God said to their forefathers. Teach them about the character of God. Teach them what it means to be God's people. And getting into the Word of God is always the key to a revival. You're not going to have much of a revival or or excitement uh, until we first get excited about hearing from God, which means getting into the Word of God and hearing what He's got to say to us. And so at this moment in the story, we're very excited for Israel. We're very excited for Ezra. They have a passion to hear the Word of God, which you'll see when we get to the book of Nehemiah. Ezra shows up over there as well. The people are very excited to hear from the Word of God. All right, let's move forward with the story quickly. Ezra has been in Jerusalem five months, and a situation arises which becomes the whole story, four or five chapters, of, of the book of Ezra. This is the whole plot of Ezra, what I'm about to tell you right now. So what's the issue that came up? Let me read from Ezra 9, verse 1. And after these things had been done, the leaders, you don't know who they are, came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Verse 2. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons. They have mingled the holy race. When I saw those three words, I paused in my study. Sounds very 1930s European language to me. They have taken the holy race and they have mingled the holy race with peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now let me see if I can explain what's happening. Of all the causes to champion, of all the battles to fight, why this one why is this the whole issue of the book of Ezra and you'll see it shows up again in the book of Nehemiah let me see if I can explain after the Israelites I'm backing up a thousand years after the Israelites are slaves in Egypt and story of Moses and Exodus okay after the Israelites left Egypt wandered for 40 years and entered into the land of Canaan 
they were told to drive out the idolaters and possess the land. Now I want you to tread very lightly in the story of Joshua. This is leaving uh, Moses and now entering into the leadership of Joshua. And I need you to tread very lightly into the conquest of Canaan. Because they are told to eradicate the people that are in the land. And I want you to just tiptoe through this because today this is abhorrent behavior for us. If, if this were happening today anywhere in the world, you would rise up and condemn it. You would demand the United States condemn it. You would demand the United Nations condemn it. If one nation sought to eradicate another people from planet Earth. Today we call this ethnic cleansing. Your word for this now is genocide. Holocaust. We find it morally reprehensible. You say, yeah, but this is the book of Joshua. Yes, and I just want to say to you again, it's a different time. This is not behavior to be emulated. This is a different time and a different place and a completely different circumstance. Now, it's worth noting, let me fast forward the story, that they did not completely eradicate the people when the, when the Israelites came into the land. They did not completely eradicate the people as they were actually told to do. When they entered into Canaan, Moses said, do not intermarry with the Gentile idolaters. Here's what I want you to hear. It was not a racial issue. It was a spiritual issue. The reason they were told don't intermarry with these peoples is not mingling of holy seed. It's not about diluting uh, uh, ancestry. It was a spiritual problem that they were facing. They were a weak people going into a country with strong established cultural practices and they would not be able to overcome them and they would get pulled into idolatry. The issue in the Old Testament is always idolatry. Now if you just get hold on to that, what's happening over here in this? It's idolatry, it's the problem. If you're in the Old Testament, the problem is idolatry. It's also worth noting that the Israelites were so weak in their faith, so weak that they were not successful at converting pagan idolaters into worship of God. Instead, the pagans were very successful at proselytizing God's people to become idolaters. That's the story that we should grab a hold of and say, listen to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 8 and let's build strong families and practice multi-generational Christianity and let's teach our kids to be so strong in their faith that they could marry anybody and move forward. I mean, they, they'll be a light wherever they go. They'll be leading people to Christ and raising up godly families. And, and it's not about racism. It was a spiritual problem for them. So Moses, because they were so weak and they couldn't figure this out, Moses implemented, let me teach you a new word, uh, endogamy. And endogamy is the practice of marrying only within the limits of your local tribe. So Moses had to implement this so they wouldn't intermarry with the other people. He said, you're going to have to marry your own people. And this is the new law of the land. Everybody do this. Now here's what I want to tell you. As soon as Moses implemented this, then Moses, you're looking at Moses and you're like, but Moses, you married a Gentile. Yes, he did. 
And Abraham married multiple Gentiles. And Joseph married an Egyptian princess, a Gentile. And Isaac married a Gentile. And Jacob married four Gentiles. And Tamar the Gentile is the one who actually got the tribe of Judah through the man Judah life back on track. So they didn't ruin their, their whole reputation. And it was Rahab the Gentile of Jericho who married into the family of Israel. As did Ruth the Gentile and as did Bathsheba the Gentile. You say, well, I, I don't understand that. If they implemented don't marry outside the tribe, why are they all marrying outside of Israel? Exactly. Because rules are hard to follow. You love who you love. Is that fair? Rules are hard to follow. And that's why if you build a house full of rules, you're never going to be able to keep all the rules. This is the story. The same Moses who gave instructions on not marrying idolaters, Gentile idolaters, then pivots in Deuteronomy and gives instructions on how to assimilate your Gentile wife into the congregation of Israel. Don't marry a Gentile. If you do, here's how you get her to be part of the nation. That's what it sounds like. Let me read it for you. Deuteronomy 21 verse 10. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers your enemies into your hands and you take captives. If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and you are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. I thought you said don't marry Gentiles. Then you turn around and say, but if you do, here's how you get them into Israel. And the whole passage follows with how to assimilate them. You say, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what the Bible is doing. Let me see if I can explain. There were many allowances made by Moses and made by past leaders. Many mechanisms were put in place to assimilate both conquered Gentiles, like war brides, and people like Rahab or Ruth, who of their own volition converted to believing in God and said, we want to be a part of Israel. So the old leaders put mechanisms in place to assimilate those people into the people of God. Matthew makes this whole point when he starts the genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament. Here are all the Gentiles in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But now in the new return to Israel, Ezra and the leaders of the Neo-Exodus, the New Exodus, are biblical literalists ultra-separatists, and they have no intention of putting mechanisms in place to take care of these um, existing circumstances. Now you have a group of people emerging as ultra-separatists, and for 400 years they're going to set the stage now until Jesus comes. This is the beginning of Second Temple Judaism this is the beginning of what you're going to know as Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the people who are always fighting with Jesus over the rules. This is the, like the emergence of this. So the new leaders, Zerubbabel, wave one, Ezra, wave two, and we haven't got to Nehemiah, but Nehemiah, wave three, they're all going to be overly sensitive about this issue of intermarriage between returning exiled Jews and existing women that already live in the land. They're going to be overly sensitive to that because they're ultra-separatists. You could say racist and you'd be right too. I'm just trying to be really, really polite and careful this morning. So several things need to be raised at this point in the study. 
these new leaders see themselves as leading a new exodus. This is the neo-exodus. Like Israel came out of Egypt into the promised land under Moses, now a thousand years later we're leading the captives out of Babylon back into the promised land. They see themselves as the new Moseses leading a new exodus into the promised land. But here's what I want to say to you, and I hope you're going to hear this, and hear it well, and hear it with grace. A thousand years have passed between Moses and Ezra. Folks, a lot changes in this world in a thousand years. A whole lot. And they are not, they're not even remotely in the same circumstance that Israel was under the leadership of Moses and Joshua, and they don't have the same mandate, they don't have the same commission as they enter the promised land. When Moses commissions Joshua to go in, Joshua's told, wipe everybody out with military armed conflict and possess the land that God has given you. When Ezra is told by King uh, uh, Cyrus and Darius and these guys, go back to Israel and rebuild the house of God, the king of Persia does not say, please annihilate all of my tax-paying citizens. That is not the mandate they were given. They are on a peace mission to just go build the house of God and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Completely different scenario than Moses and Joshua faced. Also, they're inhabiting a land that has a remnant of people already living in it. The people who are living in the land when the exiles return are their kinfolk. These are not Hittites and Jebusites and Parasites and Ammonites and all the, These are your kinfolk. When you went off to captivity, some people escaped and stayed. And then they married. Listen, a hundred years have gone by now. Listen, there's a lot can happen in a hundred years with family marriages. The people who they encounter when they get back to Israel is a remnant of Jews a people we will later call the Samaritans, which are a mixed-race people, part Jew, part Gentile. They've been living here for a hundred or more years since the captives went off to Babylon, and now the captives come back, and all of a sudden the captives are pure Aryan, I mean pure Jewish, holy race. And we've been here the whole time, and you're going to run us out of the country? We're your kinfolk. Will you marry Gentiles somewhere back in your bloodline? What does it matter? This is the whole point. Well, we don't want to go after idols and get in trouble with God. It's a thousand years later. Is that still, you're so weak in your faith that you can't convert a handful of, of pagans? We're only talking about a handful of people here. You can't convert them over to your what's wrong with our christianity ladies and gentlemen when we can't win a handful of people to jesus christ are we living that poor of a testimony in our community that we can't win a co-worker now and then or that we can't win a classmate or that we can't ask a neighbor to church because our testimony is so we well, what's the problem here i don't get it now i've got no not much patience for this whole story you're going to find out What's going on here? The, these people inhabiting the land before the exiles get there approach the exiles and say, hey, here's our hand of friendship. Welcome back. Welcome back to the land of our, our fathers. Can we help you rebuild the temple? 
We worship Yahweh also. They've made a declaration of that already in the book. They've sought out a partnership with the returning exiles. And here's what the exiles have told them. We reject you. You are unclean. You have married wrongly. You have no part in the mission of God. No, you're not going to help us build the house. Why don't you dirty hands touching these stones that are going to comprise the house of God? We don't want your, your dirty labor helping us build this clean house of God. You have no part in the temple, and we reject you from the community of Judah. That's the welcome they got. Now, you can see why there's animosity between Samaritans and Jews when you open the pages of your New Testament, right? Because this is what's happened for 400 years, this type of racism in the country. Ezra now shows up in the middle of this to teach the law of Moses. And in my opinion, he makes a big mistake by trying to enforce the letter of the Mosaic law rather than the spirit of the law of Moses. Unlike Moses, Ezra is not willing to put any mechanisms in place for the conversion. Listen, if these people are such a problem, why don't we convert them? If it's a problem, let's, you say, well, they worship Yahweh and idols. Great, then let's educate them and say it's Jesus only. Not Jesus plus your idols. He's not a God among many gods. Listen, when, what do you think we teach when we go to Nepal and India? This is the message I have to preach. I preach Christ crucified as God's king and your savior. Not Jesus and your other gods, your family gods, your community gods. You're going to have to burn them and put them away. It's Jesus only. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way but Jesus. It's the message we preach when we travel. Right? Well, why doesn't Ezra preach that message and say, here's a people that are potentially a little mixed up. Good, convert them. Teach them. Love them. Care for them. Share your food. Share your home. Tell them you love them. Treat them like equals. And bring them over to the right side. But that's not the way they treat them. Instead, they say, you're unclean. You have no part with us. You get out of here. And... Ezra puts no mechanism in place, doesn't even consider that's a possibility, to convert these people and assimilate them into the community. What Ezra and the other leaders should have learned by now, they should have learned it from the prophets who've been prophesying now for hundreds of years. The Jews have always killed the prophets who tried to prophesy. The prophets were covenant enforcers. And what they should have learned from the prophets is that being pure blood, Abrahamic DNA having a priestly administered and certified circumcision is no guarantee that you're going to have a heart for God. Having a family King James Bible in your house and having uh, your family tree written in the front cover and your great-grandfather, a, a Methodist preacher or a Baptist preacher or a Church of Christ preacher or whatever, is no guarantee that the children and grandchildren are going to have a heart for God. And that's just the way it works. It works that way in Judaism and it works that way in Christianity. Let me say it a slightly different way for you this morning. Rules can keep you away from some sin, but rules cannot create righteousness in your heart. And here's what we know. The Bible keeps returning, even in the Old Testament, to the root problem. The prophets, even, even Moses says this, 
There's going to come a time when God will turn your heart to Him. He'll take out that stony heart and He'll give you a heart of flesh, a heart that can be touched and changed and molded and transformed. It's a heart problem, not a rule-following problem, not a marriage problem, not a DNA problem. And as a leader, Ezra was not able to take the thousand-year-old message of Moses and then reapply it a thousand years later and update it for his present circumstance. By the way, that's what Jeremy and I have to do every week. We have to take messages from the Word of God that are 2,000 years old, and we have to read them and look at them and say, okay, now how do we update this and present it to God's people living right now in this Western world context? What is, it, what is God trying to get us to do? And we, you constantly have to do that as a preacher and as a leader. So these actions of get out of here, you have no part with us, create 400 years of strife and bad attitudes between these factions living in the Middle East, in, in Canaan land. And when Jesus steps on the scene 400 years later, after the 400 years of silence between the Testament, you'll see the tension is, you cut it with a knife, it's so thick in the air. Ezra is pressuring his community to turn back the clock 1,000 years to a rule-following system that never could produce holiness. The law failed to turn the hearts of the people to God. So now what do you want to do? It didn't work. The law didn't make God's people holy. They ultimately went after idols every time they had a chance. So now you know what you want to... Now Ezra says, okay, well, they, they just weren't strict enough. So he goes and gets the rule system and says, I'll implement it more strict than Moses did. They double down on their hard right position. Exactly what I watched the Baptists do in my own lifetime here in America. Your churches are dying. Your kids want nothing to do with it. They're running away as fast as they can. What do you do? Double down. Go further right. Implement more rules. Be stricter on everybody. Tell them how they can cut their hair and how they can wear their shoes and how they can wear their clothes. and Just double down on their music. Just double down on everything. You absolutely destroyed the whole movement. That's what happened in America. And now Ezra comes along and says, okay, we went into captivity because we fell into idolatry. We, clearly we weren't strict enough. Especially on this issue of intermarriage. So Ezra says, I'm going to double down now. And here's what I'm going to... Knowing that doubling down on the rules never works and creates what you want it to create... You set up now 400 years of Pharisees. And who are the Pharisees? Well, we're the rule followers. Now you get a select group of people who do follow the rules better than every. Well, supposedly follow the rules better than everybody else. This certain group of people, and they become, they emerge as the people who are really in touch with God and the people who are really, really religious and they are the people who are going to kill Jesus Christ because he doesn't follow their rules. Because to these rule followers, preserve, preserving the old ways is their religion. To the rule followers, returning back to the old ways is the whole game. It's almost as if Judaism becomes their God rather than God. The temple is so important, to, it's more important to them than the God of the temple. 
The Sabbath is more important to them than the God of the Sabbath. And God now sends his king to Israel, the king they've been looking for for thousands of years. And when he shows up, they don't recognize him because he doesn't follow their rules. So Judaism saw Jesus as a threat, not as the Messiah, not as the answer to their prayers. He was their worst nightmare. And they came to the conclusion after examining Jesus for three years, if we don't get rid of this guy, we're going to lose our temple and our system and our national identity. Exactly what Ezra is trying to preserve in the Old Testament. Let me read from John 11. See if this sounds familiar. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many signs, Jesus. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe on him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. That's what they're worried about. The Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. Wait, you're going to kill God's son. Yeah, but we need to do that because we don't lose our temple. Well, who's the temple to? God. <laughs> you see, the, you see the, the paradox here. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up and said, you guys know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man should die than that the people, for the people, than that the whole nation should perish. So we've got to, so basically Judaism said we've got to kill Jesus. So let me see if I can just really push the story narrative now. After about five months of being in Jerusalem, Ezra becomes fixated on this issue of people who have intermarried uh, Gentile brides. Watch his dramatic response, Ezra 9.3. You talk about a drama queen, you've never seen anything like this. When I heard this, what, they've intermarried with Gentiles, I tore my tunic and my cloak and I pulled the hair from my head and the hair from my beard and I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Well, he's just dirtied his diaper and thrown himself down in the floor and ripped his clothes and torn his hair out and made this big scene in front of Israel. Now it's evening time, verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and here's his prayer. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached the heavens. That's very dramatic. And the leaders see the drama. The nation sees the drama. They know he's the leader now, spiritual leader of the country. And so all the people begin to get worked up and said, oh gosh, we've really messed up, haven't we? Oh my gosh. And everybody begins to get really upset. Watch verse, chapter 10, verse 1. They all get caught up in Ezra's drama. While Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down to the ground. I'm telling you, this is a complete drama episode. He's throwing himself down before the house of God. Large crowd of Israelites gather, men, women, and children. And they too wept bitterly. Oh, there's our leader. He says, we've really messed up this time and God's going to destroy the whole nation. Woo, we're all, and they all start getting worked up. Verse 3. Now let us make a covenant before our God. These are the people talking. Send away all these women and their children. 
in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, Ezra. The matter is in your hands. We will support you. Take courage and do it. Ezra calls a community meeting, convinces the people that the women who have been married to the Jews, these women and their children are a threat to national security. You're like, this is really bizarre. Yeah, it is, isn't it? The solution, Ezra proposes, is a mass divorce that all the people who have married a Gentile bride come before the elders and they will have a mass divorce and they'll banish these Gentile women and the half-breed children from the community of Israel. Does this sound like something Jesus would do? This is a radical departure from the law of Moses and Joshua. This is using the Old Testament law to take an extreme and inflexible position on a social issue. Here's what I want you to know. There's no indication that this action is prescribed by Scripture. None. There is no indication that God told Ezra to have a mass divorce of these women and an exile of the children. Who's going to care for them? There's no discussion in the book of Ezra. Where are they going to go? To what family will they go to refuge? They've been living in the land their whole lives. So you come in as exiles, and now you're going to exile people who are already here and send them out to nowhere. They have no home to go to and no one to care for them. Now, let me, I'm about wrapping this thing up. Now you get to chapter 10, the last book, the last chapter in Ezra. And what chapter 10 is, is basically a list of men's names who have married Gentile women. Okay? And so what follows now, this is the rest of the chapter, this is the ending of the book of Ezra. It's the greatest bizarre ending you've ever had. The ending to the book of Ezra lists 111 men's names, 111 men who have married a Gentile bride, and here's how the book ends, Ezra 10:44. All these married foreign women, and some had children by these wives. The end. So I really love that book of Ezra. Isn't that something? You say, well, what's the punchline? Well, there's a mass divorce, and they all go home. That's the end. Now you're looking at Ezra, and you're like, is this a good guy or a bad guy? What is happening here in the text? Well, here's what we know. Ezra got them so worked up that all 111 men, because they, they did actually researched the records and tested everybody's blood and ran the DNA and sent it off to 23andMe and got it back and ran it through Ancestry.com, and they said, here we go. There's 111 people who have violated the law of Moses, and we're going to call you in front of the congregation and shame you, and we're going to ask you to divorce your wives and send your kids away. And all 111 men agreed to mass divorce their wives and banish them from Israel along with their children. Completely unprecedented in Scripture, what's happening. Now let's do a little math. We've got 111 women. Let's suppose they have two children each. That's 222 children added to 111 wives. It gives you 333 people who are a threat to national security, and, and you're going to banish them from the community. Now, if you know these people like we know them from reading the Scripture, they had more than two kids. 
So let's assume they had three kids. That'll be 333 children plus 111 wives, which will give you 444 exiles. Does anybody think they had more than three kids? You have four kids each. You have 444 children. You have 111 wives. It's 555 exiles. And let's just stop there for sake of fun. 555 exiles. So here's what we know. It's safe to assume that Ezra and his leadership team banished 500 women and children and sent them out into the wilderness to fend for themselves in a hostile world as an overreaction. Jeremy and I sometimes say it this way, as an overapplication of the Mosaic law. I conclude that this is really, really bad policy. You say, is Ezra a bad guy? No, Ezra's a good guy, and these are good people trying to implement holiness before God, and they just go about it the worst way possible. Just the worst way possible. It's terrible leadership. Here's the truth of the matter, folks. Life is very messy, if you haven't figured that out. If you haven't figured it out, start having kids and grandkids. Have several kids and let them grow to be adults and make decisions and let their kids grow to be adults and make decisions and you'll discover that you're not making the decisions for your family. They're making their own decisions and it gets really interesting. Really interesting. I can't tell you how many of the people that Trish and I come from were so anti-divorce until they had kids who grew up to be adults who had divorces and they have mixed families and I watched how their tones changed real quick. I grew up in a tradition where if you were divorced, the church had a very standoffish uh, stance with you. you. You weren't teaching in children's church and being a role model to our kids. That was, that was the old ways. Yeah. Uh, no church today is willing to put 50% of their players on the bench. As a matter of fact, some of the best Christians in the church. Some of the best parents, some of the best role models in the church. Lots changed, guys. Lots changed. And you're going to have to stay current with what's happening. Life is a messy. And we have to deal with the situations that we are being presented with and find ways to take biblical principles and update them into our context in a humane, loving, considerate way. Listen, I'm left asking myself, I mean, we're left asking ourselves when we read this, what's worse in the eyes of God? 500 Gentiles living in Israel or tearing apart 111 families? What do you think is worse? <laughs> These 500 people over here or just ripping apart 111 marriages and casting those people out? Now, I've been studying the Bible a little bit. Over the years, let, let me tell you what I've discovered. The New Testament has no prohibition on interracial marriage. There is no prohibition in the Bible on interracial marriage that applies to you. You fall in love and marry whoever you want to marry, okay? Now, I, I would say marry a Christian. I'm going to always cycle that way, but... Uh, I, you don't have to go get a blood test and a DNA check and make sure you're marrying a pure Germanic tribe. Uh, it's not that way. Okay? There is no prohibition in Scripture 
on who you marry racially. Now, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and David all married non-Jews. And that is the whole who's who's list of heroes of the Old Testament leadership. Okay? You say, well, they all violated the law of Moses. Every one of them. Every one of them. Okay? Now, Paul in the New Testament goes so far as to say, don't divorce. If possible, find a way forward. And then Paul acknowledges it won't always be possible and you may have to divorce. But Paul urges us, don't if you don't have to. Try to work through it. Try to find common ground. Try to find a way forward. I know there's a lot of tension on this topic. Let let me say to you clearly, the ideal situation is a husband and a wife both living as disciples of Jesus Christ and raising their children in a household of faith. That's the ideal situation. But if your circumstance is not ideal, and the majority of people I meet, their circumstances are not always ideal, then take what you've got and try to find the best way forward that will honor Jesus Christ. And follow that path and try your best to build a home and a marriage and a parenting style that will honor the God who saved you. Paul addresses this 500 years later to the European Christians who are your ancestors. And here's what Paul says to your ancestors. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, help me with this next phrase, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, what should she do? She must not divorce him. And for the unbelieving husband, he has been sanctified through the wife. An unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, what's Paul's answer? Let it be so. You can't control what other people will do. And if you get saved and your unbelieving spouse wants to go, then let them go. And you start over again. The brother or sister is not bound in such a circumstance. God has called us to live how? And Ezra doesn't sound like peace, does it? It Sounds like chaos and turmoil and yeah. You know what God's called you to live in? Peace. Now I want to just give you a few dangers before I close. When God's people do the wrong thing, Here's the danger. It becomes a biblical precedent for people to look back and say, see, this is what Ezra did. He demanded they purge the community so they would be holy. So when I travel all over the world, I encounter churches who will give me a book and show me how many people in their book they've excluded from church membership because of unholiness. And I say, what are you doing? And they're like, well, see, this is like what Ezra did. This is like what the people in the Old Testament did. Purge out the uncleanness and let us be holy as a church. How many of you people running? We have 20 on Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah, Because you got 120 in the exclusion list. And the 20 you have are just Pharisees whose sins are not known. It's a very bizarre thing. 
The Bible never demands for you to divorce your unsaved spouse. Now, please be open-minded to hear what I'm about to say. The Bible never demands that you marry only a believer. And the reason it doesn't demand that you marry a believer is because in the Bible, the context is completely different. They're in arranged marriages. They're not choosing their spouses. Their parents are choosing who they're going to marry. So the Bible doesn't say, choose well. You're not choosing. That's why it doesn't say, choose a believer. Now, ask the question you want to ask. Pastor, you think I should marry a believer? A hundred percent. But some of you will fall in love with who you fall in love with, and you will lead your spouse to Jesus Christ. Isn't that true, Daniel? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Say, why? Because you're going to be strong in your faith. You're going to lead your kids to Christ, too. You say, what do I do if I have an unbelieving spouse? Bring your kids to church and gang up on him or her. Yeah, yeah. Let the majority put peer pressure on the minority in in a good Christian loving way, okay? (laughs) Those of you who were raised in church were taught to proof text. That is to take a verse out of context and beat everybody over the head with it and misapply it where it doesn't apply. So I know many of you are good biblical scholars and you're already thinking in your mind, yeah, pastor doesn't know that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, be not unequally yoked together. I know you think I don't know that. What you don't know is 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is not a passage on marriage. Marriage is not in the context anywhere. It's a passage on idolatry. It's a completely different topic. So what I'm saying to you is I believe your best shot at happiness this morning in this modern era in Fort Worth, Texas, young people, listen to me, marry good Christian girl or boy who loves the Lord. Go off to the university, you know, Carter, and, and fall in love with some beautiful, smart is sexy. Remember that, first of all. Smart is sexy. Fall in love with some beautiful, sharp girl who loves Jesus Christ. Okay? And you all go to church together while you're in college uh, up at the University of Oklahoma. Your parents will be very proud of you. Well, not after yesterday. Take that back. Good luck. Good luck on getting into Texas. All right? Go to Austin and fall in love with a beautiful girl and wear burnt orange and live your best life. And live your best life. Now, if you're not Carter, and you already have your best life going, but it's not ideal, then take the circumstances you've got at age 20, 30, 40, 50, and find the best way forward, and try to honor Christ with the rest of your life. You say, well, what's the church going to say to me? If church ain't going to say anything, we're going to say we love you, and Christ loves you, and he wants the best for you, and we're going to find the best way forward from where we are right now. It's true that God's people in the Bible don't always do the right thing. But it's also true that I don't always do the right thing. And so I'm going to be gracious towards Ezra and say, he's a good guy trying to do the right thing, but doesn't makes a complete mess out of it. And you're going to look at me sometimes and say, Pastor, you really blew that one. And I'm going to ask you to be gracious with me. And I'll try to correct course and do the right thing. And you know, there's sometimes I'm going to look at you and say, 
What did you tell your kid? Oh, gosh, why did you do that with your kids? You're going to have to undo that. And you're going to have to find another way forward. And I hope you'll be gracious and hear what I'm going to tell you. Okay? It works both ways. Here's my conclusion. We learn that leaders cannot generate a revival, but leaders can certainly kill one. Lose. We can't generate a revival in Costa Rica, but if we don't lead well, we sure mess it up. And we sure kill a revival from happening. So this is why we have to be the right kind of leaders. Leaders who know this will lead with humility and self-awareness. And here's my whole challenge to you this morning from the book of Ezra. I want you to be a different kind of leader. And you may be thinking, well, I'm not a leader. Every one of you are a leader. You lead at work, you lead at home, you lead at school, you lead your peers, you lead on the team, you lead on the cheer squad, you lead in your small group, you lead on the staff, you lead in your, you all lead and influence in some aspects of your life. Be a different kind of leader. Lead with self-awareness that you are flawed and sometimes get it wrong. Lead through humility of your own shortcomings. And remember, the law cannot produce righteousness. Paul wrote a whole book in the New Testament on righteousness and how it's generated. And Paul's conclusion is that righteousness does not come by keeping the law, but righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And by faith in Christ, that generates the imputation of righteousness into your life. Faith. So here's what I want to say. If you want to be God's people, you don't have to have Abraham's DNA, but you do have to have Abraham's faith. Have faith like Abraham. You don't have to have a marriage like Abraham. You don't have to parent like Abraham. That's not what the Bible's asking you to do. The Bible's asking you to see a man of faith and have faith like Abraham. If you want to lead in a way that will transform this generation and the generation to come, then lead in humility. Listen carefully to my concluding sentences. Have few rules, have lots of grace. Be a conservative, but don't be legalistic. Learn that even though God's character does not change, human situations do change. And times change, and circumstances change, and you're going to need God's Spirit, and I'm going to need God's Spirit to know how to take the Bible and reapply it to our present circumstance. Above all, we have to lead our children and our disciples and our community with the same love that Jesus showed for the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. We're going to have to lead with the same love that Jesus showed to a Roman centurion or a leper or to a diseased woman or to anyone he met on the margins of society in his day. Contemporary Christianity must be careful not to over-apply biblical situations that don't apply because this will result in a form of ultra-separation which is still a problem in the global church as we find it today. What we're going to have to do as we study the Bible together is we're going to have to reject the view that the Bible characters are role models in all aspects of their life for our present behavior. Just because they had slaves is not a pretext to be pro-slavery. Just because they practiced racism 
It's not an excuse for us to have racist views. Just because they subjugated women or declared holy war on other nations, that's not a pretext for modern Christianity to say, see, therefore we have license to do so. Absolutely not. Now, when I opened, I said the Bible is not a list, a book of role models for you to follow. Now, I make the exception. There is one role model in the Bible that you will always follow and never go wrong. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you will act like Jesus and love like Jesus and lead in humility. I just see Jesus down washing their feet right now in my mind. You say, who is that? The Son of God, the creator of the world. If you will lead in humility... And if we will all practice what he told his disciples, the greatest among you will be the servant of all, then we will never go wrong as a church following his leadership model. I close with the words of Paul who told his generation how to live in a hostile world. He said, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate people with a low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil, anyone, evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And Paul closed this passage by saying, do not be overcome by evil. But how are we going to overcome evil? With good. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. My first challenge in this invitation goes to our elders and our deacons. And my challenge to you is simply this. Be a different kind of leader, please. Before God today, find a place of commitment this morning. Church leaders, staff members, children's workers. And on bended knee before God to say, God, I want to be a different kind of leader. I want to lead in humility and self-awareness. I don't want to make the same old mistakes of the past. I want to be sensitive to the situation people are in. I want to remember to love others as you loved them. And lead from that position of love. I believe if those who are leading our church will lead in that way, you will then generate a whole spirit in this church. A servant-hearted leadership. You'll generate a whole spirit of transformation in the church of Jesus Christ by your example. Moms and dads, be different kinds of leaders. You're the boss. You're in charge. We all know that. But sometimes you're going to get it wrong. Be self-aware. Learn to say, I'm sorry. You're not the Medes and the Persians with an inflexible law. You don't have to say, as it is written, it shall be done, and all of that. Sometimes you're going to have to say, I'm sorry. Husbands and wives get in the habit of being able to say to each other over dinner some night, hey, I'm sorry about the other day. I was wrong. I see that now. It's been bothering me, and I wanted to clear the air. Maybe it didn't bother you, but it bothers me that I was inflexible, and I just want to say I'm sorry. 
Maybe you've got a friend you're at odds with. Maybe you maybe y'all need to get together and have some conversation like this. Maybe you've got a disciple that hasn't taken direction well, and maybe you were too harsh. Maybe you're the disciple who's been corrected and you got all bent out of shape because you got corrected. Maybe you realize now that somebody loves you and that accountability is your only pathway to growth. Maybe you can go say to your disciple maker, hey, I responded wrong. It works in every direction leadership does. Be different kinds of leaders. Love people foremost. While heads are bowed and Christians are talking to their God they love and dealing with some of the issues in their lives, maybe you're not a believer this morning. Maybe you're just a seeker and you're, you're searching for answers, but you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to put your trust in Him. There are church leaders. Some of our leaders are in the back of the room right now. And you can slip out of your seat and go talk to them or you can talk to them after church. But if you want someone to pray with you and show you how to be a follower of Jesus Christ in less than five minutes, they can show you what that means. They'll just put their arm around you and pray together with you. And in that prayer, you can call upon Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. And you can walk out of here part of the family of God at peace with your Creator. Father God, we bow before you this morning. And Lord, we've learned a lot from these Old Testament books. God, thank you for being patient with us while we learned. God, sometimes we interpreted these things wrong and held these people up as role models on how to exclude and be separatists. Lord, I don't think that's the message you're trying to teach us at all. Lord, we need to be pure and we need to be holy, but that's a spiritual matter, not a, not a racial one. God, this morning, I pray that you would challenge the hearts of your people here and that we would walk out of here determined to lead better, lead in a different way. God, if you would set us up for revival, help us not to kill it with bad leadership. Whether that's here in Fort Worth or in Costa Rica or Nicaragua or wherever we're going to implement your word, God, help us to lead well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.